In John chapter 12, we're going to cover the whole chapter, so we'll move at a little bit different pace than normal. Um, we want to really become familiar with the days leading up to his crucifixion. We want to understand better all of the, or at least some of the prophecies that are being fulfilled in this chapter, um, seemingly one after another. And, and try to imagine somehow this 100% this God, 100% human being and the, the tension and the stress and the weight that is on his shoulders as we come into this chapter. We begin in verse 1 of John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard and an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So this is six days before. Um, it is actually man's idea and not God's idea that um, our day starts when? When we get up in the morning. Um, if we go back to creation, what is a day according to God? Evening and then morning as the first day. So this is actually just kind of giving you a sense of this here. This would have been Saturday evening um, going from sundown or to dusk or to beginning of the day after um, Friday, the beginning of Saturday. Well, this would be probably as sun is going down. He's in the home of familiar people here some of his closest friends on earth. If we read this without reading the other Gospels with it, um, we would miss that it sounds like it's at Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house. Um, interestingly enough, John, or excuse me, John Mark, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 14 that this is in the house of Simon the leper, which is interesting um, for our time today. So if we went to Mark chapter um, 12, and verse 3, I think, and I think I wrote that wrong. We won't go there. We won't turn there. I think it's, um, anyway, he is in the house of Simon the leper. If we go all the way back to Mark chapter 1 and we go to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, he is in Bethany, and about verse 40 through verse 44, a leper comes up at, to Jesus and pleads with him to heal him. Um, we, we think of Jesus entering places that are dangerous from a virus standpoint. In Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40, he, Jesus is asked the question by this Simon the leper, um, heal me if you are willing. And Jesus actually walks up to leprosy as a flesh-eating disease that would eat the flesh off of people. It was highly contagious. It would even like... It was common for people to be without fingers. It would eat their, their joints and their skin. And Jesus walks up to him and puts his hand on him and heals him. It's an interesting exchange when you read what happens there. This man immediately gives his whole life to Jesus Christ. He is immediately cleared of leprosy, given instructions to go to the high priest, also given instructions not to tell anyone that I did this. 
what happens is he can't keep it in. He has to tell everyone he sees. And because of this, Jesus can no longer walk around in freedom. So he gives this man freedom while he loses his own. So Jesus would have to sleep in lonely places, Mark chapter 1 would tell us. But this leper is now the site we are in in John chapter 12. Simon the leper, um, having converted, became very close friends with Lazarus and Mary and Martha to the point where they're so close where um, Martha is serving in Lazarus's house, which tells you two things. She's serving again, which is not a bad thing. And it tells you that she is very familiar with Simon. Then we see another picture here where Mary, and it's interesting that the only position you ever find Mary at in the Bible, and you see it in multiple places, is always at the feet of Jesus. So if we picture a Passover meal, I won't get down on the floor for you, but the, the table would have been about this high. Um, people would have laid on their sides with their feet outside the circle, and they would have aligned themselves around the table. would have been similar at the Last Supper. Um, the, the tables are low to the ground. They're in close proximity. She would have walked up to Jesus' feet outside the circle, um, taken what will be described here as a year's wages. It's described in other places as her life savings. She has saved for her life to purchase this alabaster jar of perfume so that she could anoint Jesus before his death. So she comes up behind him and pours this on his feet and washes it off of his feet with her hair and the room is filled with this perfume. I think that this would have been such a, a strong smell that was put all over Jesus that he would have, in the days to come, smelled that as he was walking along. Mary, in a sense, gives her life savings to Jesus. It's a much more extravagant amount, but it's very similar to the woman who Jesus points out that puts two mites in the offering. And he described her as giving all she had to live on. Here Mary gives Jesus all that she had to live on. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone. And by the time John does, when we put all the four Gospels together, when Judas does it, the other disciples do Yeah, why wasn't this given to the poor? So when Jesus says, leave her alone, he's speaking to the disciples. Here Jesus is six days before his crucifixion. And his disciples are arguing about money. And Mary is at his feet and they're rebuking her for anointing Jesus. John is writing this about 30 years, actually about 50 years after this happens. That's why there is so much more commentary from John than the other Gospels. So much to teach us theologically. We pick up the story, verse 7, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended. This was in God's plan before the creation of the world. That she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. 
You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. No one supported giving to the poor more than Jesus. But Mary understood what the disciples didn't. This is the last chance with him. Martha and Mary understood what was coming for Jesus better than the disciples did, better than the apostle John did. Verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, excuse me, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is a house of testimony here. We have described in this room, it's very possible Satan is in this room because in the upper room, in the next chapter, Satan is in that room. But we have Mary, we have Martha and Lazarus and Simon the leper. Simon the leper spread the news about Jesus Christ so extensively that he couldn't walk around Galilee anymore. He couldn't go out freely because Simon <clears throat> had spread the news so much about him. And then we have Martha who to the question, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. In, in chapter 11, before Lazarus is raised from the dead. So she's here in this room. Then we see Lazarus here in this room who has been resurrected physically. This news has gone everywhere. If we... In John chapter 11, when, when Jesus prays for Lazarus, he goes out and he holds up his arms and he speaks for the benefit of the audience around him so that they would believe, and here they are. The people that he prayed for are looking for him and they want to find him again. And they go to Bethany and they find him at the house of a leper being anointed by Mary. We read on verse 12, the next day, it's now Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, what we are celebrating today. We are now five days before the Passover. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey. There is so much being fulfilled here. This crowd that is shouting gets it. So we don't know who all is shouting what. We know who all is against it and who is opposed to it, according to Luke. The Pharisees are trying to go around and tell them, be quiet, don't say these things. Because of what they're saying, when they say Hosanna, Hosanna in Hebrew means save us or save us now. So the Hosanna in the Hebrew is a call to the Messiah. So they see him here as the King of Israel and the Messiah. They are proclaiming, which makes more sense when Luke says, Luke records Jesus saying to the Pharisees, if they don't say this, the stones will cry out. They are literally crying out, Messiah, King, Messiah, King. 
as he is coming along and he is coming into Jerusalem, prophecies are being fulfilled and Zechariah 9.9 says that he will come gentle and riding on a donkey. So John says here, this scripture is being fulfilled because John didn't get it then, but 50 years later he understands it. Gentle, and he will come to you riding on a donkey, Zechariah says. So John quotes Zechariah here. Zechariah tells us how he will come. Daniel and the 77s is referred to here. And we see it more clearly in Luke, but we're going to stay in John. In Daniel chapter 9, he proclaims a prophecy where at the signing of a treaty to rebuild Jerusalem which is Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, when that treaty is signed. By the way, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, is about 90 years after Daniel. Daniel says, there will be 77s where God will do everything he's going to do in relationship to sin. And he says in the first 69 sevens, those 69 sevens will, will culminate with his first coming. So, when Nehemiah signs a treaty, or Artaxerxes signs a treaty, he gives him a treaty to go rebuild Jerusalem, he gives him a treaty to provide things for him, he gives him a treaty to tell all of the surrounding territory and abandoned Jerusalem, leave these people alone and give them whatever they need. Daniel says, when that treaty is signed, it will be 69 sevens until Jesus comes. 69 sevens is 483 years. It is 483 years from the day Artaxerxes signed that paper to this moment. So Jesus says in Luke's gospel, if you would only have understood that this is the exact time of God coming to you. God is on the donkey. The Messiah is on the donkey. The King is on the donkey. And Daniel says, after the 69 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. Which is a prophecy that parallels Isaiah 53 of Jesus going to the cross. So all of these things are being fulfilled here. Verse 16, we read on. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. John's being honest with this, writing this 50 years later. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him in Daniel and in Nehemiah and in Zechariah and that these things had to be done to him. Verse 17, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. You've got Simon the leper, People saw the resurrection of Lazarus physically and they're spreading this all around Jerusalem now. They've gone from Bethany to Jerusalem. Verse 18, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, the raising of Lazarus, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The gospel is spreading. The tension is raising. The Pharisees are angry. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, 
who was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is also where Peter and Andrew are from, and that will make sense as we read verse 21. They came up to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with their quest. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. This is a unique insertion here by the Apostle John. Just turn back a page to chapter 10 and verse 16. This is the passage of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. In verse 16, he speaks to what is happening that we're reading in chapter 12, five days before his crucifixion. I have other sheep, he's speaking of Gentiles, that are not in this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 says that the primary mystery of God in the Bible is that Jews and Gentiles will be brought together to form one body. Jesus is pointing to that here. He is telling them, I am the gate to heaven. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep hear his voice and the, the sheep know the good shepherd. And then he says, there's more sheep out there, other sheep that will also hear my voice and they will become part of one flock with you. They will become what we would later learn, the church so in verse 20, when we see that there are some Greeks among those who went up to worship the festival, they come to Philip. Um, we'll know all of Philip's story when we get to heaven. He's a Jew, but he's got a Greek name for some reason. In fact, Philip is one of the most Greek names you can have. Philip's son was Alexander the Great. So Philip is the father of the first king of Greece, and it's a very prominent name. We'll see other Philips in the Bible as well one of the 12 deacons, another Philip's. If we learn about this Philip, it's usually in the Gospel of John. We see him on multiple occasions. We see when Jesus first calls the disciples, he goes to Nathanael and says, we found the Messiah. We see him at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has a direct conversation with Philip to calculate how much it's going to take to feed all these people. And we see him here as a person that the Greeks would go to. The Philip we see in Acts chapter 6 is a different Philip, but that Philip becomes one of the six because the Grecian, the Hellenistic, the Greeks weren't being taken care of in the early church. So this all ties together here, and it's all intentional by Jesus that these are the other sheep, these Greeks, that he is bringing in as the church is about to be born. Verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. There's so much in here. That a lot of it that we can apply right now 
this place, starting at the top, um, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that he died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Romans 6, 5 says, If we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united in, with him in a resurrection like his. So Jesus gives us this picture of grain. If you're going to have a harvest of wheat, you need seeds that will die. Jesus explains in these verses, if you want to preserve your own life, then fruit will not come from you. Jesus is the example of first fruits by explaining that unless I die, there will be no gospel. And then he says, unless you die, the gospel won't go through you. He says, whoever wants to serve me must follow me. Wherever I am, they must be. This speaks to this Sunday, this Palm Sunday in the United States of America. Jesus says, if you're going to serve me, you need to be where I am. Dave and I were talking about this this morning. Jesus is omnipresence, right? So, fellowship with Jesus this morning, if possible, is right here. When I step away from his will for my life, what I understand from the scriptures to be his will for my life, I'm not following him. So there's so much in these passages that appoint today. My father will honor the one who serves me. We need to hate our life according to this passage. And what that means is who I was, what this world has to offer, what is out there for me needs to be left out there. That doesn't mean we don't go out in the world. That doesn't mean that we don't walk among unbelievers. It means that wherever Jesus wants us to go, that will be the only place I can fellowship with him. So reading on verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said, It had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit. So one of the few occasions that God the Father speaks directly in the Bible, like the transfiguration, we see the Father at his baptism, we see the Father here as he is approaching his crucifixion, asking his son, asking him to glorify your name, Father. He says, I will. I will do it through you and what you are doing. Verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So much in these verses here. 
the prince of this world, we're going to talk about this in church builders today, so I'll leave that alone right now, but Satan. Satan is defeated, fulfilling a prophecy in Genesis 3.15, when Jesus speaks to Satan and says, you will hurt his heel, but he will crush your head. The crushing of his head is about to happen. So Jesus says, what I'm going to do now is going to drive out the prince of this world. He is still active, he is still dangerous, but he is defeated. Verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. There's so much here. I want to look at three important verses. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And I want to read that verse again while you're getting there. Listen to these words. When I am lifted up from the earth, in other words, when I am crucified, I will draw all people to myself. I want to understand some of the depths of what he is saying here. In chapter 5 of Romans, in verse 18, he says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, resulted in justification for who? All people. When Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He has to be lifted up for that to happen. Until or if Jesus doesn't die on the cross, every person could go to hell for original sin, including their own sin. So because he is lifted up and because he is going to rise from the grave, he can draw all people to himself and what Paul tells us here in Romans 5.18 is that, um, let's read it again, consequently, just as one trespass, Adam and Eve eating the fruit, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification for, and life for all people. What was done in the garden is undone at the cross. People will only go to hell because of the cross, because of their own sin. Because original sin is wiped out. Let's look at another place, 1 Timothy 4.10, where Paul says the same thing again. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The power of the cross and what happened there we will never fully grasp. But everything done in the garden was wiped out by what Jesus did on the cross. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, he says the same thing. This is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially those who believe. So he tells us two things as he's writing to Timothy heaven and eternity and his kingdom and his promises and eternal life and all of these things come to those who believe. But salvation in wiping out original sin came to everyone. Everyone has a savior named Jesus 
and those who believe especially have a Savior. Turn to 1 John chapter 2, where John writes similarly. 1 John chapter 2. And verse 2. John writes the same thing. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, who's our believers. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Part of what happens here is Catholicism is completely annihilated. All John, Romans, 1 Timothy, 1 John, all of these verses say that Jesus paid for whose sins? Everyone's. He obliterated original sin. He paid for the sins of Adolf Hitler from birth to death. But if Adolf Hitler doesn't believe in him, he will still pay again. This is just to help us understand the depths and the, the power of the cross as Jesus goes there as we go back to John chapter 12. What Paul is doing in those letters in Romans is magnifying the power of the cross. One sin contaminated every human being in history. One righteous act paid for it all. Verse 34, or he said, first of all, in John's commentary in verse 33, so we know that verse 32 is pointing at the cross. He said, this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Lifted up means crucifixion. That's why he tells Peter that in John chapter 21. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? We looked a couple of weeks ago in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, tells us who the Son of Man is, the, the one who God the Father has given all authority. Then Jesus told them in verse 35, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going, but believe, or excuse me, believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Turn to John chapter 1. It is in John chapter 8 that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Look at the beginning of this masterful gospel by John. The establishing of uh, the Messiah and the King and the Creator and the light beginning in verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Turn to 1 John chapter 1 briefly. I should have kept you there from before. 1 John chapter 1. 
How important is it for a Christian to be where God wants them to be in all circumstances of your walk with Christ? Jesus says, we already read in John chapter 12, if you want to serve me, then you have to follow me and you have to be where I am. In 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. Not capable of light, not exuding light, not demonstrating light. He is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. All of John, 1 John 1 is about believers. And he says that we have a choice as believers to walk in the light, the light of God's word, as he will explain in John chapter 12, or to not walk in the light. He says, if we walk outside of the truth of God's word, we're in darkness. If we walk with Jesus, we're in the light as he is in the light. And he said earlier there that in Jesus there is no darkness at all. The protective provision, power, and perseverance, strength, joy, and peace is found where he wants you to be. Does that make sense? In other words, if I am obeying his word, if I am where he wants me to be, there is nothing to fear. But, if I'm his child and I'm not where he wants me to be or I'm doing something he does not want me to do, John says we walk in darkness and the truth is not in us. And later in that chapter, he says that we claim that God is actually a liar when we do that. Let's turn back to John chapter 12. Prophecies are continuing to be fulfilled as we move forward. Verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And, who, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke to him. In Isaiah 6, he sees Jesus in his full glory before stepping down to come to the earth. And the seraphim are hovering over him singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and the throne on which he sits, this singing is so vibrant that the, the posts in heaven are shaking. And he sees this picture and, and Isaiah is suddenly struck with his own sin. And he says, woe to me, I'm a man of, of, of sinful lips and I live among a people of sinful lips. And, and the seraphim takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips and says, see, I have wiped away your sin. 
And then Jesus says to Isaiah, who should I send? And he says, send me. And in verse 10 of Isaiah 6, he asks this question, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then he quotes more from Isaiah chapter 6, that he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. When, Isaiah? When specifically does that happen? It specifically happens when he comes riding on a donkey. And to show that, let's turn to Luke chapter 19. What we're reading in John is immediately after the triumphal entry of Christ. If we turn to Luke's gospel, we see when this hardening falls, and it's the same moment that Luke is describing. In Luke chapter 19, what John doesn't tell us is that Jesus is weeping in the verses that we are reading in John chapter 12. Verse 41 of Luke 19 if we dropped back to verse 38, we see, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is the triumphal entry that John is taking us through. Drop down to verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day, this particular day, the day that Daniel told you would be the exact day, the day that Zacharias said I would be riding on a donkey so you would know that it was that day. If you had, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. That's the hardening dropped on the Israelites because of their rejecting of their Messiah. Verse 43 he prophesies here what Daniel prophesies in Daniel 9, the destruction of Jerusalem because of their rejection. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on the other because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The entire Old Testament is filled with signs, as John calls them. This way, this tribe, this king, this people, this city he'll be born. This is where he'll live. This is how he comes. This is when he comes. And Jesus comes and they don't have a clue. And he just weeps and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you would only have known, it's me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the King. But because you don't, Daniel's other prophecy will be fulfilled. They will destroy the city. If we went to like the, the um, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 and in Luke 21 and in Mark uh, 13, Peter, Andrew, James, and John say, look at the magnificent temple, Jesus. Isn't this amazing? It's the grandest, largest temple in the Bible, much larger than Solomon's, as Herod rebuilt the temple for them. And Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. That's exactly what he tells them here. But here he tells them why. Because I came on time and you didn't recognize me. 
So the hardening that John is talking about as we go back to John chapter 12, the hardening that he prophesied to Isaiah 700 years before Christ, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD that Daniel wrote about in Daniel chapter 9 is all going to come true. And it's hard now for a Jew to believe because of rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. Verse 44, Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come into the world I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. We think of familiar verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The next verse says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The next verse says, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who is evil hates the light and will not come into the light because they fear that their deeds will be exposed. But the next verse says what Jesus is saying here. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So verse 47, if anyone who hears my word does not keep them, another place he says that's like building a house on sand. I do not judge that person. He doesn't condemn anyone. Though people are condemned through their choices. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Here is the judge, verse 48. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on that last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say, is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus is literally saying here, if you have access to a Bible, if you have heard the words of Jesus, faith comes how? By hearing the message about Christ. You're not saved yet. You have access to faith. Jesus says, whoever hears my message and obeys it, has eternal life. Whoever hears the word of God about Jesus Christ and doesn't follow him will be judged by the word of God. Literally, neither the Father nor the Son nor the Holy Spirit judge anyone. People judge for themselves. 
People accept his offer or reject his offer. People will be in hell because they refused his offer. They will be in heaven because they accepted his offer. Let's close and turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're all final judgment. Satan, Antichrist, demons, humans, all final judgment happens in this realm. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. From John 12, verse 48, what's one of the books that is open? The one you have in your hand. And every word about Christ that a human being who rejected him has heard, they will hear again. And it will literally be the word of God that sentences them. So Paul, for example, says to the, the elders in Ephesus, he says, I'm an innocent of the blood of all of you because I have not failed to share with you the entire will of God. The more you hear of the word of God, the more you will be judged by the word of God when he comes. Let's read on verse 12 again. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. What would be another book? The book of life. We're going to hear that in a minute. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. There's another book. It's called the ledger. And it's going to have every sin that you've ever committed in it. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. The beast comes out of the sea. The sea is a place of wickedness in the Bible. And death and Hades. Hades, every lost person in history will be brought before the throne in this moment to be judged. From Cain to the last sinner in the millennium, they will all be brought before him here for the final judgment. They gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Praise God, hallelujah, that I will not be judged for all the sins I have committed. We, read, we sang that in an old familiar song this morning, the old rugged cross. Pardon. What a beautiful word. The Bible says Jesus forgets my sins. Does that mean his, his memory is lost? No, it means he pardoned me. When you go and the president on the last week of his his um, time in Washington, D.C., he will pardon people that he chooses to pardon. They have to fill out a sheet that says they were guilty of everything that they're accused of before they can be pardoned. So forgetfulness to God is, I will never bring this up. I will never dwell on it. I will never consider it. The debt is paid. What an awesome thing to know. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. We are focused on good. There are so many people 
that are focused on good and, and, and doing the right thing and, and preventing and helping in our world today and in masses of people, there is only one who is good and they don't know him. They don't know your son. We live in a world where we, we believe that, that man can change the climate, that man can solve plagues, that, that man can do whatever needs to be done. And that's a, that's a subtle and, and serious rejection of the authority of your son. Lord, help us in this hour. This is an hour in history that you chose for every person in this room. Help us to love people out there more than anyone else is loving them. Help us to be available to help those who are being hurt or living in fear. And help us to start by the message of John 12, to stay in the light, to stay in your word, to say in a place of obedience where the next thing that you tell us to do, we're ready to do it. This world needs a savior, but they don't want a king. Help us to introduce the king savior to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.